Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This week is Pasha Shmois, and we're going to continue learning the Halachas of Yichud. And this is the third part so far. Now, last time, we learned about the concept of a Shomer, which is a person who you are permitted to be alone with and can also serve as a watchman of sorts to prevent Yichud being a problem. So we said then that there are three conditions to be able to serve as a shimer. Number one, the shimer has to be at least five years old. Number two, at night, two shimer are necessary. And number three, when no bathroom is available, two shimer are necessary. So that's, in a nutshell, when you can utilize the shimer. So for an example, if um, you, uh, a woman, are home alone, with another man, and you have a child um, with you, a five-year-old child boy with you at, by day, that works. By night, you need two children with you, and so on and so forth. So now, let's discuss a different kind of shimer. This, what, what kind of shimer does a husband serve for his wife, and what kind of shimer does a wife serve for her husband? Interestingly, it's, they're not the same. Let's begin with what kind of shimer a wife is for her husband. So a wife is definitely a shimer for her husband. So if uh, you know your your you and your husband are home and there's another girl in the house, so you can be a shimer for your husband. You definitely a, a woman is a wife is as good as any other shimer, but she's even a better kind of shimer than a typical shimer because she's referred to as ishtay mishamarta. A person's wife protects him. And what, one of the differences is that by night, although typically by night you need two shimerim, if it's someone's wife, their wife is sufficient. You don't need to have two shimerim. So a husband and wife can sleep in a house with another single girl, and that's not a problem, even though typically one shimer is not sufficient. But a wife is a sufficient shimer at night, even though she's only one. And likewise, even if there's no access to a bathroom in the place where they are, again, a wife is a sufficient shimer, one shimer is enough. So this is, can be very helpful, obviously, if you do have a guest who is a, a single girl. However, if a husband is home alone and his wife is not home, then there's a question if a wife can serve as a shimer when she's not actually in the house. And this is the way in situ- where we find that a husband and a wife are different. Now, some guys can maintain that as long as the wife can possibly come home and she knows where her husband is, then she maintains her status as a shimer. Others disagree, and they hold that only when she is in the house, although she's not in the room, but only if she's in the house can she serve as a shimer. So therefore, typically, we don't rely on the lenient opinion, and we do require that the wife should be in the house in order to be considered a shimer. But in situations where the yichud is only a yichud durabanan, it's not a raisa yichud, for example, if the husband is in the house alone with um, two women, not one woman, but with two women, then it's only yichud durabanan, and we would be able to rely on his wife being a shimer, even, even though she's not in the house. But again, even for even according to the opinions that the wife can be a shimer when she's not in the house, it's only if she can come home at any time and he she knows where he is. And that's the only way that the 
even those that hold that a wife does work as a shimer not being home, can it work? So if she's away at, at work and he knows that she's not going to be coming home for two or three hours, then everybody agrees that a wife would not have the status of a shimer in that situation. So this would only help if she goes out and she's going through grocery or etc. so she can serve as a shimer, although she's not home, if it's not a derisive situation of Yichah. Typically, basically, we would not really rely on this heter, and really what this is, works for is just that a wife is a shimer for her husband. She's home and you never need to shimer, a wife is sufficient. That's really the main difference of a wife as a shimer. Now, when we talk about the other way around, that a husband can be a shimer for his wife, that is actually a much more powerful status of shimer. This is called, in halacha, ba'ala ba'ir. Her husband is in the city. As long as a woman's husband is in the city, he is an automatic shimer for her, although he's not in the house. Here, everybody agrees. As long as he's within the city, within city limits, he serves as a shimer for her. So if a woman is home and a repairman is coming over, or a man, which is a youth problem, but if her husband is in the city, although he's at work, and, and she knows that he has no plan of coming home, nevertheless, he counts, still counts as a shimer. This is a leniency that a husband is considered a more powerful shimer and works as long as he's in the city. If, if though, the wife goes somewhere without telling her husband, so her husband doesn't even know where she is, then there's a question whether we can still reapply the heter of Balabir. And this depends on what exactly is the reasoning behind this heter. Some pais can say that a husband works as a shimer, but a shimer is only good if he knows where to go or if he knows how to find out, how to check up. And if he doesn't know where his wife is, he can't possibly be a shimer. But the Chazanish says that that's not exactly what the concept of Bala Be'ir is. It's not even a Shemer. He said, rather, it's an estimation Chazal made that when a woman's husband is in town, it's very unlikely that any problems will arise, even if he doesn't know where she is, and therefore it can be relied on. And obviously it's always better to let your husband know where you are so that we can avoid this question, but Lamaisa you can rely on this chazanish. So you can rely on your husband being a shamer for you, even though he doesn't know where you are, as long as he's in the city, we apply this heter of Baal here. Now, even though where he might be in the city can take him quite a while to get home, like in rush hour traffic, it's still fine. You can still rely on this heter. The only two situations, though, where this heter does not apply is number one, if her husband is not in the city. Like if, for example, he went to Baltimore or he went to New York. So then you cannot rely on this heter. This is strictly if the husband's in the city. The second situation where you can't rely on this heter, which makes things actually kind of complicated, is there's a concept called libay gaspa, that if the person you're being alone with is someone you're very comfortable with, then you can't rely on the heter of the ear. So for example, if let's say the person you're alone with in your house is related to you, like a nephew. You're a ho- a home alone with your nephew. You're very comfortable with your nephew, but there is an Isra Yichud together with your nephew, or a close friend, or a boss, or a coworker, etc. All those people are people that you're cl- you have a relationship with and you're comfortable with, first name basis perhaps. Then we consider it Levi Gaspa, and whenever it's Levi Gaspa, you can't rely on the Heter of Balbir. So to sum it up, 
what we've said is that a wife serves as a shimer for her husband. She's a very strong shimer, and she is always a sufficient shimer. You never need more than a wife. But for the most part, you can really only rely on this if she's in the house with her husband. Then she can be considered a shimer, and she's sufficient. But if she's out of the house, then it's questionable if it can be relied upon, and really essentially should ask a shiloh in those situations to see if you can use that as a heter. A husband is a much stronger kind of shimer for her, his wife. She's bal of the ear. And as long as he's within city limits, he can be relied upon as an automatic shimer, even if he doesn't know where his wife is. He's considered a shimer, and she can be miyachet. However, if the person she is being miyachet with is liba gaspa, someone she's very comfortable with, then you can't rely on this heter. Parashat Shemais begins by naming the Shvatim. Sefer Shemais, really, begins by naming the Shvatim and mentioning the fact that 70 people, Yaakov's children and grandchildren, went down to Mitzrayim. Then the Pasuk says, Vayomot Yosef, Yosef died, Bechol Echav and all his brothers, the Shvatim, Bechol Hadar Hahu, and the whole generation. The Pasuk continues to say that Kal Yisrael then multiplied rapidly and greatly and the land was full of them. That's the end of the first paragraph of Sefer Shemais, what we call a parsha. The next paragraph begins with the new parai, his plan, and how the Jews became slaves and were forced to work. Things deteriorated very quickly, at least as far as Sefer Shemais is concerned. So the clear indication here in the way this is written is that none of the problems began until Yosef, the Shvatim, and the rest of that generation passed away. And the Midrashim all verified this fact, that the slavery of Mitzrayim only began after the last of the Shvatim, who was Levi, passed away. Why is it that nothing happened until all the Shvatim passed away? We find a number of different approaches in the Midrash. All of them are relevant for us to know how to appreciate the tzaddikim we have and the tzaddikim we've had in our midst. There's an early sefer, it's called the Sifse Kayen, and it's from one of the Talmidim of Darizah. He writes that as long as Yosef lived, the slavery couldn't begin, because Yosef simply would have damned and revoked the decree. Secondly, he says, Hashem wouldn't bring the decree to fruition while Yosef was alive, because that would cause him pain. The Tadik's Zuchus prevents such evil decrees from happening simply because he's there. That's the power of a tzaddik. The greatest tzaddikim of Europe died just before the Holocaust. The Chafetz Chaim died in 1933. Rav Baruch Ber and Rav Shem in 39. Rav Chaim Ozer died in 1940. The Chazanish would say that Hashem hid the full extent of what was happening in Europe from him. He was there to If he would have known, he was confident that he could have broken the decree with tzila. The simple presence of a tzaddik in the world creates amazing protection and great degrees of bracha. And when a tzaddik passes away, we lose all that. There's another essential point here. The Medrash says on this Pasik that Yosef passed away, it says, Behashem bagadu kibanim zarim yelidu. They betrayed Hashem and they gave birth to strangers. What does that mean? They betrayed their covenant with Hashem. How did they betray their covenant? The Medrash explains that once Yosef died, 
they stopped performing bris milah on their children. Why did they do that? Because they said, let us be more like the Egyptians. They wanted to integrate and assimilate. And once they did that, this is all the words of the Medrash, Hashem changed the love the Mitzrayim had for the Jews to hatred. As it says, Hafach libam lisnoi amai. Hashem changed the love the Mitzrayim had for the Jews to hatred because they tried to integrate. What an amazing Medrash. It casts light upon the way that Golos Mitzrayim really began and the effect every Golos has upon us. As long as Yosef and the Shavatim lived, Klai Yisrael held on to their identity as Jews. They kept Brismila. They kept the special covenant that they had with Hashem, which identified them as the children of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Once Yosef and the Shavatim passed away, that began to slip. They started to lose the connection with their Jewish identity. They stopped doing Brismila on their children, thinking it was better to integrate with the Mitzrim. Ironically, as it always is, that itself caused the Mitzrim to hate them. The Medish indicates that the Mitzrim loved them. And why not? The Jews had ended the famine and brought prosperity upon Mitzrayim. But all that turned into intense hatred once the Jews stopped serving Hashem and maintaining who they were. But what kept all that in check? Yosef and the Shvatim. That's what the loss of a tzaddik does. The Pasuk says, Yosef and his brothers, and the whole generation. Who does the whole generation refer to? The Sepharna, the Rajbam, uh, the Medrash. They say it means the original 70 people who came to Mitzrayim with Yaakov. Now, some of those were very little children at the time and probably never really got to know Yaakov. So what does this mean? Tzadikim has such a powerful effect, powerful effect on the people around them. That's why it's all important to constantly relate the stories we have of tzaddikim. They have such a different view on life, such a real relationship with Hashem. Sometimes we feel that the stories of the earlier tzaddikim are so far removed from us, they're not relatable, but to the people of the time they were relatable because they were in the presence of such tzaddikim. The next generation, a little less so. What changed? The lack of tzaddikim demonstrating what we can accomplish, what we can expect and should expect of ourselves. Let me give you an example. We, we all go through the month of Av and Tisha B'Av in different ways. Regardless, it's difficult to mourn properly for the Beis HaMikdash. Have you ever seen someone who truly mourns for the Beis HaMikdash? I mean, cry over the Charbon the way Le'olenu, a person would cry when losing a loved one. So I have not. But I have heard from someone who did see a person like that. Marashashiva would tell of the first time he and his father, of Isaac Osban, that's how, went to Eretz Yisrael after 1967. They went to the top of a hotel where they could view the Makam HaMikdash. They had an angle that they could see the Makam HaMikdash. His father toured Kriya, and he said he cried as if he had just lost a child. He was so distraught that Merebi could not speak to him for the rest of the day. Real mourning on the Kharbim of the Beit HaMikdash. And the fact that I heard this from Merebi, who saw his father mourning that way, changed the way I mourn over the Beis HaMikdash. It brought us a step closer. When Yosef died, there were still his children and his nephews and nieces that knew him, learned his ways and could communicate them. They could transmit it. But when they all died, the whole generation died, then that last piece moved on. 
and people started losing touch with the Jewish identity. And that's the value of appreciating a tzaddik, the loftiness of the person. It brings us back a generation with every little bit we can think about and try to relate to. The Chassam Seifer says that really there's another important lesson we should take from this passage. He writes that this passage should be understood, that Yosef died, and he died first, according to the Midrashim. Yosef was the first of the Shvatim to die. When he died, the people mourned for him so greatly that it was as if the whole generation had died in their eyes. When Yosef died, to them it was as if the whole generation died. Because they so greatly appreciated what he was, and that's why they flourished. As the next passage says, the children of Israel, the, the Bnei Yisrael, they multiplied and they filled the land. Even after a tzaddik passes away, if we hold on to his legacy, his values, what he represented, and what was so important to him, we can still have the bracha come down from Shemaim that came down in his merit. If we talk about the Chavetz Chaim, how careful he was with Lashon Hara, how much it meant to him, how much effort he made to teach the whole world about it, and so on, we're reviving a little bit of the Chavetz Chaim. If we would only have the merit to meet someone who saw the Chavetz Chaim and actually witnessed how he related to the mitzvahs of guarding our tongue, think of what an impression that could make upon us. I saw another fascinating thing. The Panam Yafis writes that Kal Hador Hahu, the whole generation, it doesn't refer to the 70 people. He says not all of them died. Yechevet lived, Tarach Basasher lived, Ephraim lived, so on. He says, you know what it refers to? It refers to the Egyptians who knew Yosef. Who knew Yosef. The Mitzrim, meaning that not only are the Jews of the generation of Atatic affected, but the non-Jews are as well. When Atatic dies, the whole world drops in status and morality. And that's something that we unfortunately are witnessing and have to witness. We just learned the Gemara and Megillah, Dafa Shavua. The Gemara is explaining a Pasuk in Divrei Hayamim, which refers to Moshe Rabbeinu, and it sums up this whole thing. It has three different ways to refer to Moshe. One, Avigidar, Avigdar. Gedar, why? Because he stood in the way, Gedar is a fence, he stood in the way of evil decrees. Two, he's called Chever, because he connected Kalei Yisrael to their father in heaven. And three, he's called Socho, because he was like a sukkah for Kalei Yisrael, meaning his presence protected them. And these are the three qualities of having a tzaddik in our generation that we've been talking about. One, they'll daven and revoke evil, evil decrees, gedar, as Yosef would have done. Two, their presence simply prevents evil things from happening, just as the presence of the shvatim prevented the slavery from happening. They're like a sukkah. And three, they demonstrate to us how to connect to Hashem, chever. They connect us to Hashem, and with their loss, we lose that unless we work to appreciate it. Have a good Shabbat and a good night.